Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday night, we hear the remarkable story of how the wreck of a steamer that sank off the coast of Washington State nearly 150 years ago after leaving Victoria headed to San Francisco has finally been located. How will it be salvaged? And what will happen to the 200 pounds of gold believed to be on board? Canada's UN Ambassador Bob Ray joins me to talk about his three-day trip to Haiti, where a humanitarian crisis continues to unfold. The state has all but collapsed, with criminal gangs controlling 60% of the capital. How do you bring security and stability, and is sending troops in the answer? We hear about a new scam you'll want to know about if you plan to buy gift cards this holiday season. But first, Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques tells us about the successful first phase of NASA's Artemis mission with the return Sunday of an uncrewed capsule after more than 25 days orbiting the moon. We look into Canada's contribution to a mission that should see astronauts return to the moon and in the future go to Mars and beyond. First up, it was in fact 50 years ago yesterday that astronauts last walked on the moon as part of the Apollo uh, program. Uh, these were the words of Apollo 17 mission astronaut commander Gene Cernan on December 11, 1972. As I step off at the surface at Taurus Littrow, we'd like to dedicate the first step of Apollo 17 to all those who made it possible. Well, 50 years ago, and as of today, we're one big step closer to going back. Uh, the new lunar mission is called Artemis, twin sister of Apollo, of course. And on Sunday, as I was mentioning, the first part of that mission came to a successful conclusion. The Orion spacecraft splashed down off the Pacific coast of Mexico after spending 25 and a half days traveling around the moon. The final stretch of his journey was perhaps the most dangerous or one of the most dangerous of this first phase. Uh, after traveling some 385,000 kilometers, um, it was traveling about 32 times the speed of sound, nearly 40,000 kilometers an hour as it hit the air yesterday. So it, it was very hot. It was very hot. Uh, 2,760 degrees Celsius, I think was the estimate, about 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit when it was coming in. Uh, it was an uncrewed mission, but NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says this one paves the way to resume crewed missions into space, to the moon, Mars, and beyond. The plan is to get ready to go with humans to Mars late in the decade of the 2030s, and then even further beyond. A Canadian should be part of that next phase of this in 2024 when there's going to do a crewed lunar flyby. Uh, Canadian astronaut David Sejac has been watching all of this unfold very closely. He spent 204 days on the International Space Station back in 2018. And David Sejac joins me now from CSA headquarters in Saint-Hubert, just outside of Montreal. Thank you so much for your time. Bonjour, bonjour. How are you? I'm well. Thanks. This was an exciting uh, an exciting moment yesterday to see it uh, complete its mission so successfully. Absolutely exciting. I don't know if that's the right word. It is actually historic. I think uh, what a weekend, what a moment when we Good. well, very nail biting for anybody in the business when you actually know <laughs> how many things have to go right for this capsule to come back from the far side of the moon. Can you imagine? Yeah. We loved this three weeks ago and it's coming back on Earth after fiery re-entry into the atmosphere at speeds that had never been done before. I mean, it's, it's amazing. A huge teamwork and it, it's work i wouldn't say flawlessly but wow the, the the list of things to work on there's lots of adjustments to make but nothing big it's amazing 
I, I didn't understand, of course, that this was probably one of the most challenging phases of this because so much had to go right. And I guess you mentioned it was the speed, the reentry, the heat. Uh, that's a very that's a very non-engineering way of putting it. But there was a lot of things being tested out here. So, yeah, chiefly is the fact that, well, just, let's say three things were really at the core of this. This is a flight mission, right? Flight test, no crew on board, just the system. But a, it was the first time that the whole thing was put together. So hence all the delays and launching because we're ironing out all the launch pad problems and the integration problems, including all the ground station satellites, all the network of satellites, all the communication, navigation, propulsion, guidance, all of that. Had First time it was all assembled and sent to the moon. Then the speed at reentry is quite tremendous. Uh, and so the, the issue here is that when things come back from space at high speed, when I say high speed, I mean like 12 kilometers per second, really, really high speed. They heat up. And that, that's why, you know, no, that's why shooting stars are bright and burn up because they're rocks that are basically falling super fast in the atmosphere and they, they go so fast that it burns. The friction makes it them burn. So obviously we don't want the capsule to burn. So we need a very robust heat shield. And so, and you cannot test those velocities and those heat on the ground. You cannot, you have to go there out there for real and just lob this object out on the far side of the moon and make it basically fall back to Earth uh, at this incredible velocity. And that worked perfectly well. So, And then the other thing to test was all the recovery mechanism. You know, the, sh the Navy ships that are out there, all the way we have to make sure a capsule you know, doesn't capsize, doesn't sink, uh, that the, the temperature inside is reasonable for the crew member when there will be crew members. So all of that worked super, super well. There's a long list of little things to adjust, but wow, it's uh, it's impressive. Yeah, what... Uh... What did we learn during this this thirty two this this mission that lasted I guess more than a month right when it finally launched I guess the delays were all well worth it since it worked out uh, but what no, did we learn it, during during its first this first step uh, of of this project? So a lot of the experiments on board were to do with survivability as we call it uh, for the crew members. So there were well they on board there were no people on the mission but there were these you know these. Uh, if you want so, so-called crash test dummies that we mm -hmm. see you know, in the automobile industry to see the accelerations, how it is for people. There's also radiation type uh, dummies to make sure that, that the environment is survivable uh, around the moon. A lot of measurements of the radiation environment. All these things that were during the, the time of Apollo with kind of hope for the best without knowing too much, you know. <laughs> uh, so uh, some people might say, you know, well, we were on the moon 50 years ago. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that Every single Apollo mission was kind of a near miss in its own right. The something is very, the really high tolerance to risk uh, during those days. With Artemis, uh, we want to go back to the moon in a sustainable and a kind of responsible and kind of reliable way uh, to sort of be there uh, for good. So it's a very completely different emphasis. It's also an international program as opposed to, uh, to Apollo. So it has a very, very different flavor. And uh, maybe as a sign of times, you know, the, the name Artemis, Maybe your listeners don't know, but Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. So I think uh, that tells something about the kind of desire for inclusion. Uh, that's the hallmark of this program. Yeah. What, what next? What happens now? So this mission was Artemis 1. It was the first step of the Artemis program, which is a series of increasingly complex missions. The next mission, Artemis 2, in about two years, knock on wood, if everything works according to plan, We'll have crew on board going all the way to the far side of the moon and looping around the moon and coming back. And there will be a Canadian on board that mission. 
So that is huge, tremendously important for our country. We'll be only the second country to send someone uh, to the moon. So, and then Artemis 3, go on the moon, four or five going on. There'll be a lunar station, if you want, around the moon. Canada is contributing a smart robotic arm for that, like an evolution of Canada arm. We'll go, uh, Canada arm three, we call it, we'll go uh, to, uh, to the moon environment. And so these missions will all lead to eventually a base on the moon, all of that in preparation for the really crazy, absolutely mind-bogglingly dangerous uh, goal of going back, going to Mars. It seems remarkable. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it seems remarkable amazing. to think about to think about about the idea of going back to the moon because I think for a lot of us, especially my age, the, those first lunar landings were too early for me. I, I wasn't. I don't remember them. I saw them, obviously, uh, but this is going to give a whole new generation of kids of every of all of us a chance to sort of witness history again and can- a Canadian in it as well. Amazing to have a Canadian on board, uh, Artemis too. And you're right. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm like you. My mom was pregnant of me. <laughs> yeah. the, the moon yeah. landings, but they have inhabited my my childhood. I'm also we're all part of the, if you want, the Apollo generation. Kids these days, they will be the Artemis generation. It will be their motivation for exploration, education, to kind of be out there and uh, and broaden their perspective. And you know the. The people who will go to the moon, those crew and the engineers who will build those systems and all the scientists behind, all these people are born, but they're still children and they will be heavily influenced by these uh, these incredible missions coming up. And they, I mean, it will be amazing. It won't be like, one thing that I think you in the media will appreciate, it won't be like gritty black and white images. Oh my God, this is going to be you know, HD, 360 degrees, VR type of imagery uh, that we're going to have for those moon missions. So it's going to be quite something that, to go along for the ride. Yeah, I mean, just on a separate mission, just watching what's coming from the James Webb Telescope has been mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, indeed. Where it's really around the, it's just the dawn of a completely new uh, new age in uh, medicine space exploration. But it's sort of, I think we're starting to think to realize that we, it's not just exploring and like holding our breath and you know, and for a great adventure. We're gonna live there. We're gonna just we're just broadening the bubble uh, where humanity can just can function and exist. David Sejac is with us this half hour. He is, of course, a Canadian astronaut. We're talking about uh, the return of the Orion uh, space uh, module over the weekend, the first step in the Artemis uh, project. Step one, Artemis 2 will involve a Canadian. This too will loop around the moon, uh, but a Canadian will be involved. And then, of course, this all leads on to bigger and bigger things as we go on. Uh, you were mentioning it earlier, there is an evolution of the Canada arm on this on this project. Canada is also involved in other ways. We're playing a fairly, a fairly significant role in this very important uh, project. Indeed, yes. So the Artemis program uh, will include a, a station, an orbital station around the moon this time, a smaller version of the International Space Station. The International Space Station, as you know, was has not only does it use Canada Arm 2, a robotic arm, Made in Canada, it was built with Canada Arm 2. You know, we built this thing. Every right. group of countries would produce modules and it was assembled, uh, carefully assembled on orbit uh, with Canada Arm 2. Canada Arm 3 is going to be a smart robot benefiting from all the advances and latest advances in uh, robotics technology that's going to be uh, living and operating in the moon environment on the gateway, it's called, this uh, moon uh, outpost. Uh, and an interesting fact is that that uh, lunar uh, orbital uh, laboratory mm-hmm. will often have no crew on board. And the only crew, if you want, will be this Canadian robot. So we will be really at the forefront 
Another key contribution is we will contribute rovers on the moon to for robotics mission, kind of ahead of the arrival crew to help them, you know, set up the cargo, build the base, perhaps uh, things like that. So sort of utility rovers, uh, as we like to call them. And there's many other things that we're looking at for more longer term, for maybe growing food uh, on the moon or eventually on Mars. And the reason why we look at that is because as a country, we have a really high interest in growing food in crazy environments, right? Like all our north or anywhere in, this, anywhere in Canada right. during the winter. Uh, if we can't do it here on the ground in the winter near Montreal, well, we'll never be able to do it on Mars, right? So better start learning here. Also, medical services. We're uh, looking at how Canada could uh, contribute to providing medical services for these crew on their really deep space missions. Um, you got to think of astronauts on their way to Mars as like a like an extreme case of home care, if you want. And I think we all have a great desire for kind of more modernized medicine where you don't need to go to the hospital for medical care. Care can come to you. These, these very similar desires we have in the space program. So there's like a great uh, conjunction uh, of efforts. So the future future is bright. Everybody wants to be involved in the yeah. future space exploration. I know this is probably a simplification of it, but it felt like the original lunar projects, the Apollos, were, were really about just getting there. It was about a, it was about a space race, and this is really about learning things, about figuring out how what we learn there can be applied back here, and vice versa. You're you're, you're right. Uh, there's there's some of that. Yeah, the yeah. Apollo was the result of a race, uh, and uh, there was a great desire to you know get there as fast as possible, and their tolerance to risk was much higher. With our teamists, we are focused on reliability and a sort of the long-term perspective that we're there to stay, going back to the moon uh, to stay and eventually s- turn everything that we have learned in the lunar environment to the very crazy ambitious goal of going uh, to Mars. So as a first step, this $4.1 billion test flight, as a first step, this seems to have been a great success. And I guess we're going to see, uh, I, we have to wait a few years before we see or know who the Canadian will be and see uh, how that next step will evolve. Indeed. So the focus now that we have brought Artemis One uh, back on the ground is to look at all the incredible amount of data that we have gathered on the space flight and make sure that, you know, we cross our T's and dot our I's and iron out all the little flaws and all the integration problems because there were many. I mean, there's nothing major, but a lot of little things uh, had to will have to be adjusted. Plus, everything we've learned about the environment of the moon in terms of radiation and the quality of those orbital fields. So that once we have ironed out all these technical details and then we can really get ready to assign crew members for Artemis 2 and, and start training them. So that will be the result of a, an international discussion to kind of make up the best crew. With the, We don't assign individuals, we assign crews as a whole uh, to maximize the chance of success of the, of the, of the, the mission. And that's in a few years' time, I, I, I gather. The mission will be... If all goes well, probably in two years is what uh, we keep hearing. So uh, knock on wood. It'll be an exciting time at the Canadian Space Agency. It's uh, what a can't great wait. time to be there. <laughs> we cannot wait uh, to uh, to hear that. David Sejacques, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, have a good week, everybody. Now the story of a sunken ship, tragedy, and treasure. Um, it remains one of the deadliest maritime disasters in the history of the Pacific Northwest. And it happened not too, too far from where I'm sitting tonight in Victoria. In fact, it left not too, too far from where I'm sitting tonight in Victoria back on November the 4th, 
1875, the paddle wheel steamer SS Pacific set sail from Esquimalt, which is in the Victoria area. It's where the military base is now, heading to San Francisco with between 275 and 400 people on board. Uh, but including unticketed passengers, it's hard to know exactly how many people were on the ship that night. And commercial cargo as well, it's believed that included 200 pounds of gold. Of course, that was right in the middle of the gold rush, right? As the cliche goes, it was a dark and stormy night, and as the Pacific headed out into the open sea from the Strait of Juan de Fuca that separates Vancouver Island from northern Washington state, she collided with another vessel while rounding Cape Flattery, it's called. The Pacific would soon sink, and only two of those on board, I believe, would live to tell the tale. Remarkably, it sat there ever since. Now, nearly 150 years later, a team of explorers has discovered the wreck, and we may at last see the Pacific lifted from the depths of the ocean for which it was named. Jeff Hummel has spent decades searching for the ship. He's the executive director of the Northwest Shipwreck Alliance, and his company, Rockfish, of which he's president, was set up to locate and retrieve the Pacific. They've now been giving salvaging rights, have now been given salvaging rights to go find it and get it. According to the U.S. court filing, the ship was carrying, again, 270 passengers and a cargo that included, among other things, gold. And Jeff Hummel joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. What a story. Yeah, thank you for having me. And that was a great synopsis of the story. Well I hope done. I didn't give it all didn't give it all away. I know there's lots to talk about, but you you read about this a very long time ago. This is something you've been thinking about and following for years now. It's possible I'm the slowest person to ever find a shipwreck, but uh, it took a lot of persistence to uh, you know go after this particular wreck. Um, I first learned about it when I was in high school. Uh, in a particular history book uh, about the Northwest, and it seemed intriguing. I um, met up with a, a good friend of mine, Matt McCauley, in uh, high school, and the two of us salvaged some World War II airplanes out of Lake Washington, ended up in federal court when we were 20 years old, uh, got clear and free title to the airplane, and this particular project you know, seemed intriguing, and so I started doing research on it and gathered some people together and made various attempts, and it was kind of on and off effort for a number of years. And then, um, you know, recently we've had some success. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the SS Pacific itself, because I'm actually in Victoria, so not too far from where she set sail. Uh, it, was, it was a time when a, a ship going from Victoria to San Francisco was, was not out of the ordinary, right? And this would have been, I gather there were some pretty important people on board. It was carrying a lot of stuff. Well, you know, at the time period, um, this was the main transportation up and down the coast. Uh, this particular ship was the first regularly scheduled uh, transportation between Seattle and uh, San Francisco. And, you know, when you do an endeavor like that, you you know pick up the other local cities. So Tacoma, Seattle, uh, Port Townsend, and Victoria were the primary cities uh, in the northwest at the time. Um, the sidewheel steamer had been built in 1850 for the California Gold Rush. So it was a little long in tooth, you know, in, a, in an era before good wood preservatives and good paint and those sorts of things. And so it was, it had a, you know, kind of a rough life and a rough few years, but it had been refitted and, and prepared for this uh, particular uh, run. And what happened? Because it, 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 I mean, it rounds, if you leave the straight, straight of Juan de Fuca, you round out into sort of, I guess the open ocean, right? Um, and it was just as it was sort of making that turn and heading out that it, that it encountered another ship. Is that right? Well, it was actually a, a number of miles down the coast. So they had actually okay. cleared the Cape. And it was very unusual circumstances. So not only did it sink due to a collision, 
but it also sank in the first few hours of a 100-year storm. In fact, at the time, it was the lowest barometric pressure that had ever been recorded in the Northwest was uh, uh, during this storm. So they headed down the coast, uh, and the um, nephew of one of the owners of the ship, he wanted to kind of work his way up the ranks uh, on the Pacific, and so he had been given uh, this particular watch. And as often happens in maritime disasters, you know, it's the least experienced guy on the worst watch in the worst conditions. And he just didn't have the experience, you know, for that particular situation. Coming up the coast was a vessel called the Orpheus. And um, on board that, the, the captain had uh, told the, the first mate, he said, you know, if you see a light, you know, ahead, starboard the helm, which means turn offshore. So as soon as he went below to consult with his chart, um, you know, the captain could tell that the boat had turned. So he put his rain gear back on and went up on deck and said, you know, what's going on? They said, well, there's a light just off the port bow, which if that was the Cape Flattery right, light, that meant they were just about to run ashore. So the captain assessed the situation. He said, well, that's not the, that's not the lighthouse. That's the masthead uh, light of a steamer, and it's, you know, pretty close. And uh, on board the steamer, you know, the this young guy at the helm, you know, with no experience, uh, he was told he couldn't change direction unless he had permission for the officer of the watch. Well, Officer of the watch was in the after salon, you know, making friends with all these rich uh, gold miners on board. And uh, by the time they got up to the wheelhouse and assessed the situation, uh, they never made a course correction. And they basically, the two ships collided. And um, 12 inches of oak versus two and a half inches of, you know, 25-year-old oak, the, uh, the new oak wins. And the Pacific went to the bottom. Where it's remained, right, for, for all this time. Um, yes. What's remarkable, but it, I, I, and I guess the, there must have been, people knew it was there, but there were, because it's, it's a well-known story, but there must have been attempts over the years to try to figure out how to retrieve it? Yeah, as far as I know, there's been a, you know, six or seven attempts. There's a few that I'm just kind of vaguely aware of. Uh, the first effort I know of uh, happened back in 1985, um, you know, before kind of the newer modern equipment uh, existed. But um, yeah, people have been looking for the ship for a long time. Tell me how coal came into play here, because I gather that's one of the clues that you latched onto that allowed you to figure out perhaps where it is. Well, we did a lot of analysis on what they call renav, where you take all of the navigation elements, the speed of the ship, the speed of the current, and the, the course they steered, and all that sort of stuff. And you come up with a mathematical probability area, but the, it was very large because a number of the variables you're just not able to pin down. There's just no factual basis for making it a smaller area. So uh, in doing my due diligence, and um, I worked in the marine electronics field, I was out and about, you know, dealing with different commercial fishermen. And so I started to interview these people that had, you know, fished on the coast. And eventually... Uh, just kind of by luck, I you know latched onto this one particular fisherman, and his brother had found you know some coal, and by coincidence, he he still had the piece of coal because it was so strange for him to get this piece of coal. So I found a geologist uh, on uh, in the Victoria area, and I expected you know if I did some analysis that the coal would have come from Victoria because the day before they'd taken on 230 tons of coal. It seemed to me that if you had this piece of coal, you could trace it back to a particular coal mine. And this woman that I found, this geologist, she had samples of coal from all these different old mines. And I thought, okay, this is great. This is going to work. So we had it chemically analyzed by a company up in Alberta. And the results came back, and she said, well, you know, I'm sorry. The coal is not from Victoria. And I'm like, what? Well, 
where's it from? She says, well, I'm pretty sure it's from Coos Bay, Oregon. So, you know, back to the archives, back to the research. And I learned that the owners of the coal mine, or excuse me, of the ship, owned the largest coal mine in Coos Bay, Oregon. It's called the Libby Mine. Eventually, I found some mining records from World War II, and I was able to match up um, the you know, various parameters of the coal uh, to that particular mine. And so then I knew in my hand I had a, a piece of coal from the ship. And then the question is, well, where is the ship? Where did this piece of coal come from? Right, which would be so. What did you do then? I mean, it's 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 like it's like a detective novel, right? To some extent, as you go through sort of going through all the different layers of the mystery. Yeah, well, there's this principle called Occam's Razor, which um, my interpretation of it might be slightly incorrect, but the idea is the simplest story is the the most often the correct story. So the simplest story would be um, he had lost his net on the bottom, and he felt really bad because it was the last trip he was going to do on this boat before he became a welder. And so he lost the net on something on the bottom. And then later he went back with grappling hooks and grappled and got the net back. And we got it. He just got a portion of the net. And in that portion of the net was the coal. And that's why he had saved it. But uh, so we went back to that location through a very long story. We were able to get the logbook from the ship and the coordinates of where the coal was recovered. And that was just the beginning of this long string of clues that eventually led us to the location. Because that Occam's razor is not always true. The simplest story wasn't that the coal came from that location. It actually came from the beginning of where he had started his fishing trip. Jeff Hummel is with us this half hour, director of the nonprofit Northwest Shipwreck Alliance. We're talking about how he found the SS Pacific, which went down in 1875, just off the coast of Washington State, after having left Victoria on its way to San Francisco. So what kind of condition is it in? Uh, because I would imagine it must be pretty well preserved. Well, that is the unusual uh, part about this story. We had certain expectations of what we might find, uh, and none of those were true. So um, the exact condition of the ship, we are keeping that a little bit of a secret for this sure. uh, time period. But I will say that it is in a remarkable state of preservation, uh, which I think will... Um, you know, make it a world-class project in terms of any other vessel being quite like what we have discovered. It's extremely unusual um, in our experience to find anything like what we found. Yeah, I saw you compare it to a time capsule in another in yeah. another interview. Absolutely. It, um, I believe that we will find, you know, bottles of wine with the cork still in them. Uh, we'll find things made of leather. I think we'll find things made of wool and cloth. Um, you know, I think uh, it, it, you know, it's going to be an amazing set of artifacts uh, coming out of the project. So how do you salvage something like that? Well, um, we're doing it kind of in a, uh, we, we envision it a three-year project, uh, three to four years to do the recovery. Um, the first year, we're going to go after um, the artifacts that are in the debris field. So one of the things that we're able to determine um when you read the historical accounts, you're never quite sure exactly, you know, what happened. But we can tell now that um, there was a, a boiler explosion at the surface. And um, so we found, you know, a fire brick uh, in the debris field. And so there's a lot of material, you know, in, in the debris field. Um, and so we're going to recover that first because it's still um, at the peril of the commercial fishing nets uh, dragging on the bottom. So we want to uh, clear out that debris, you know, protect and preserve it, and then move on the second season uh, to the, the main ship. What, um, I, obviously, the, the, the 
question of the gold has come up quite a bit. Do you have, I, I suppose you can't say whether you know if it's there or not. Well, I think um, for certain there is express cargo uh, on the ship. That's you know published in you know many of the accounts. Um, we're not really speculating in terms of what else could be there because you know newspaper accounts and stuff like that are kind of notoriously inaccurate. Um, they're sensationalized, especially around an event like this. So um, you know we're kind of saving judgment on that. We know the express cargo is there. We uh, hope to enter into an agreement with the um, underwriters of that cargo and uh, successfully recover it. They still exist, the underwriters of the cargo. They never go away. <laughs> um, yeah, so the ownership of a vessel like this is kind of interesting, you know, how it plays out. Um, the underwriters of the ship, the people that insured the ship, um, we know the names of those companies. We know how much the ship was insured for. So they have some, you know, interest still in the, in the hull of the ship. And then the underwriters of the cargo, ultimately, it's uh, Lloyd's of London. And uh, we've had right. you know, discussions with them over the years. And um, we hope to you know, wrap up an agreement with them sometime in the near future. And I guess in many ways, this, is, this would complete a journey for you, too. And, it's, and it is such a piece of, of the history of this region as well. I imagine you'd want to see something done to memorialize what happened that night, because it remains one of the worst maritime disasters uh, that in, in memory in these parts, at least. Yeah. Um, on the West Coast of the United States, this is by far the worst uh, maritime disaster. Um, later, you know, during World War II, there were much larger disasters, you know, associated with the war. But for our history here in the Northwest and, you know, on the West Coast uh, of the North America, this is by far uh, the worst uh, maritime disaster. Um, our plan is to build a, um, a museum uh, here in the Northwest uh, for the shipwreck. Uh, we have kind of a big plan of building a, a hotel complex and museum and conference center and technology center uh, somewhere in Puget Sound. Um, you know, it could be as far away as Victoria. We'll just kind of see who is interested in, you know, putting together a project like this. It's a, it's a big project. And I think that, the, you know, there's different facets to the whole um, you know, effort that I think make it interesting to you know, people from outside the area. So I think it'll be a, a destination place to go to, learn about this history and learn about the past. Um, there's so many um, untold stories about this particular gold rush. I and mean, so many people have heard of the California gold rush and the Alaska gold rush, but who's ever heard of, uh, you know, the gold rushes in between. And this one was associated with, with one of those in upper British Columbia in the Cassier area and um, 1875. So it's uh, an unknown chapter, or a little known chapter of uh, Northwest history. Yeah, yeah, and, and and such such the early part of the history of this region as well. To some extent, the, the you know the, the settler part of, of of the history of this region, um, and for you too, I guess something that you've been following since you were in high school. It must feel gratifying to 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 be near the end of the journey. Yeah, well, the end of the first part of the journey. Thank goodness. Right. Um, you know, when you take on a project like this, you just never know. There's just so many variables and. Um, you know, I don't feel bad that it took so long to, to find it because, I mean, all the other people that tried, they eventually gave up. Um, it has been very difficult to find. It's been much more difficult to find than you know, many of the bigger shipwrecks you've heard of, like the Titanic. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it sank in just these unusual circumstances. And, you know, the bottom of the ocean out in the area uh, has a lot of canyons and different nooks and crannies where you can hide something. And uh, it was hidden for a long time. Well, Jeff Hummel, I look forward to see what happens next. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. And uh, enjoy chatting. Take care.
Well, Canada's UN ambassador, Bob Ray, he's someone we speak to fairly often on this show. He's just back from a very important trip, a three-day mission to Haiti. You may know just how much trouble Haiti's been under of late. Uh, Their president was assassinated uh, about 18 months ago now. There's really been no functional government there for a long time. Street gangs control, I think, about 60% of the capital, so there are no-go zones throughout. Uh, Because of it, The UN warns that uh, there are catastrophic famine-like conditions for about 20,000 people. Now, that's not a huge number, but imagine they're living in the capital of a Western country um, in Haiti. Uh, There's also a cholera outbreak on top of that, which is another reminder of just how dire things have become. A lot of stuff is unavailable, gasoline, food. It's really turned into a a mess, which is, you know, one of those things. I I did a, a huge project back at university on Haiti and the Haitian Revolution back in the 1800s. I mean, there was a time where Haiti was the jewel. It it was just so lush and rich and beautiful. And of course, it's been deforested and taken apart. And it's just, it's a place that is unimaginably bad now. So Bob, part of Bob Ray's mission was to try to figure out how do you bring security first and then stability there? How do you have elections? How do you put a government back in? How do you restore order? To some extent, um, as he was putting it, you know, the, the gangs uh, outgun the police. There is no government to speak of. Um, a lot of politicians are in cahoots with different gang members. There's money to be made. A lot of that money obviously doesn't stay in Haiti. It gets funneled out of the country very quickly as um, corruption tends to do. So major humanitarian crisis there. Bob Ray sent to figure it out to try at least get us on the right foot. There is a... Um, a meeting tomorrow. The Prime Minister is hosting a meeting of the Crisis Committee looking over Haiti, what to do. There's some talk of trying to send in troops. That's what um, the Prime Minister, the Interim Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, has asked for. He did that back in October. Uh, neighboring Dominican Republic, of course, they're not happy with what's going on. Uh, they're getting a lot of refugees in from Haiti into the Dominican Republic. They're wanting uh, a military intervention. But of course, that comes with a huge cost. And in the past, it hasn't really worked out that well. So the liberals are now, the liberal government here is now looking for, and this is what Bob Ray is looking for, Haitian-led solutions. Um, Canada sanctioned about, uh, I think it was 11, 11 prominent Haitians over alleged gang ties not too long ago. We've sent some military vehicles to the country, but really what we're looking for here is Haitian-led solutions. Um, but let's quickly begin because Bob Ray knew Jim Carr. So there was some sad news out of Manitoba today with the death of Liberal Member of Parliament for Winnipeg South, or Winnipeg Centre rather, since 2015 and former Cabinet Minister Jim Carr. The 71-year-old had been diagnosed with cancer just days before winning re-election in 2019. He announced, I think, just days after. And fellow Winnipeg MP Kevin Lamoureux announced Carr's passing in the House of Commons today. I don't know how appropriate this is, but I would ask uh, my colleagues if uh, you, Mr. Speaker, could just give uh, a moment of silence. Uh, our colleague Jim Carr just passed away, and I think it would be an appropriate thing if we could just have a moment of silence and a prayer. There we will stand for a moment of silence for the passing of the Honourable Member, Jim Carr. Jim Carr was 71 years old. He had been fighting a cancer for quite a few years now. Joining me now is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. Uh, as always, Ambassador Ray, thank you for your time. Nice to talk to you, Ben. Um, I guess starting with Jim Carr, a, a big loss today for the for Canada's for the, the whole political community in Canada and beyond. Uh, he seems like he was quite the man. Uh, he was a he was a thinker and was interested in 
in the whole country, as well as in his, his home community of Winnipeg. He spent his life working with different groups, building up community support for projects and for ideas. He worked with the Chamber of Commerce in, in Winnipeg. He he worked on a number of public policy initiatives across the country. He was a voice for Western Canada. Uh, but above all, I mean, Jim was just a really, really good guy. He was extremely decent. He worked hard. He cared about people, great sense of humor. You know, he was not, nobody's perfect. But he came pretty close. I mean, he was a really, really good person. And uh, I think he was very much appreciated in all parties. So I, I think it's important for, for us to you know, take a moment, as we're doing as a country now, to reflect on, on him. His battles were you know, with his health. His, he had a tough time with leukemia lymphoma, and he fought hard against it and came through at the beginning. And, and then, of course, it's a, it's a very nasty and difficult illness because it comes back at various times in various ways. I've lost my brother to it, so I, I'm very familiar with the challenge. And he handled it all with great grace, good grace, good, good spirit. He and I spoke on the phone a bit over the last while, had a chance to really chat with him about what a relapse meant and, and what the chances were. He was under no illusions, but he kept going. He did not want to give up or stop working, which is what he loved to do. And he and he loved to be engaged. And he was so proud to be a member of parliament and to be uh, responsible for legislation and moving it forward. So uh, he, he went right to the finish line. He was a remarkable guy. You're just back uh, from Haiti, uh, a place that is uh, from afar, looks like it's under, you know, sort of a, a, a form of chaos that's hard to describe. Uh, what was your what was the purpose of the trip and what did you find? Well, my purpose was to continue discussions that I've been having over the last several months. I chair a, a group of countries at the United Nations. We're called the Advisory Working Group on Haiti. And it's been in place for a long time. Canada has been chairing this group for a number of years. And so in my case, it sort of the, 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 it comes with the territory of being the Canadian head of mission. And of course, the events of the last while have intensified um, the engagement, the work of the committee, as well as my own personal engagement. I came to Haiti in, right after the aftermath of the earthquake in 2010. And that was total devastation. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people were killed in an instant uh, in Port-au-Prince. I don't think people could comprehend the extent of the damage and also the the way in which you know, entire leaderships of the government were were destroyed. I mean, it's it's it was just devastating. The capital city was practically wiped out, and th- that led to more intervention and help from a number of countries. It has led to an engagement by the international community to stay in solidarity with the Haitian people, and so I was been working on this for uh, since I got here and have made now a, a couple of trips in the last two or three months to really try to look and see what can be done to get the government on a path towards an election and creating the basis for renewal in Haiti because it's 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 it really is in a in in very tough shape at the moment and the level of chaos is signified by the amount of the country that is under the control of of gangs those gangs uh, make it impossible for people to get get out and about with any security. They kidnap people. They've kidnapped thousands of people. They've killed thousands of people. And 
Many women have been sexually assaulted and abused. Women, children are being trafficked and stolen from their families. I mean, it's just a complete devastating mess. And so the prime minister of Haiti, who was appointed just two days before the assassination of the president, has asked Canada to to lend more more help and has written that to the United Nations and to Canada and to the U.S. So all those things together mean that it's pretty hard to turn your back and say, well, we're not going to talk to you. No, thanks. We we give every year. We're not going to do any more. And so we've 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 talked about what more can be done to restore a level of order that will make a transition to an elected government, which means an election first and then the government, possible. And that is a challenge right now. And we'll just have to see how that can be done. And we're continuing to to discuss this wasn't a, a an all or nothing trip. It was just a way of furthering along the dialogue and making it clear that we're uh, we're in this for the long term. I guess reestablishing order is the challenge at this point. Uh, just some of the statistics. I know what your, your UN counterpart is right now. The humanitarian coordinator has been talking about Haiti of late. Uh, there's lots of calls about whether or not military intervention would work. Uh, what is your sense being there? I mean, obviously the or the the forces that are there need our support to reestablish some form of legitimacy and order within not just the capital i imagine but across the country yeah i mean it's not a it's not a huge country many canadians may not know exactly where it is on the map it's it's the western half of the island of of hispaniola which is close to cuba jamaica puerto rico part of that family of countries in the northern caribbean Right next door to Haiti is the Dominican Republic, which is the eastern half of the island. It's not an easy situation to sort of give a prescription. I I think we have to learn from some of the mistakes that have been made in the past. There's many people who urge a, an all-in intervention, troops, the whole schmear, thousands of troops on the ground, etc. We need to understand that we, that's been done now twice in the last while, and uh, each time we have not been left with a what I would call a sustainable impact, an impact after the event. It's very easy to come in and stop something and 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 stop it in its tracks and then leave. But the problem is if if that's what you do, uh, you really haven't solved anything because you haven't given people the continuing responsibility of governing themselves in an effective way. And so, We've taken some steps on sanctions, which uh, have sent, I think, a clear message to the economic elites and the political elites of Haiti to say, this corruption has to stop, and this connection with the gangs has to stop, and basically pilfering money and depositing it elsewhere in the world has got to stop. And it's it's a degree of criminality that no society could survive. It's, it's, it's got to be put to an end. And our sanctions will do so much, but then you've got to get serious domestically. You've got to deal with corruption domestically, which means you have to have a state, and a state has to have institutions. You've got to have judges, and you've got to have people who can put people in jail, and you've got to have trials, and you've got to make the state more powerful than the criminals, and you've got to make sure that the criminals don't capture the state. Uh, these are all difficult things to do, but we need. I think we've got a better handle now than ever before on on the nature of the the challenge ahead of us. 
Bob Ray is with us this half hour, the UN ambassador, Canada's UN ambassador. He's just back from a, a fact-finding mission to Haiti, uh, a country that's uh, known a lot of turmoil over the last decade, more than a decade since the earthquake there in 2010, never really been able to get back on its feet, and it's simply gotten uh, worse as time has gone on. Um I gather that there are other ways we can support existing structures, such as the police force there. Uh, how feasible is that in the short term? Well, we, we've been doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly what we've been doing over the last several months. Mm-hmm. They asked for more heavy equipment, vehicles that could withstand the firepower that the gangs have. When your criminals have more firepower than your police, you got a problem. And that's exactly what's happened in, in Haiti. It's a wash in guns, uh, and these are not just like hand pistols or or pop guns. These are uh, Stalishnikovs and uh, very sophisticated weaponry. Uh, and so we, we've got to make sure, in order to make sure the criminals don't simply take over, that uh, we are in a position to support the police in their training, in how they operate, and in the equipment that they have. And and that, I think, is something that we've been doing. And now the question is, how much more of that can we do and how quickly can it get done? And how can we make sure that everything we do is is based on the principle that it's it's the Haitians themselves that have to be able to, to deal with this question? I, I, I think that's something which we have to keep insisting on. There's always been a tendency for the economic and political elite the country to say, look how bad this is. You've got to do something about it. And so people go in and do something about it, and then they leave, and then the political economic elite just take over again, just say, fine, thank you very much. You've done our job, and now we're going to keep on doing what we do. And and that that has not been a productive cycle, and we all need to understand that. And And so I think our approach has to be based on basic fundamentals like the rule of law, you you've, you can't have elements of the country that are raping and killing and kidnapping and stealing, and nobody's doing anything about it, and people are getting away with it, and there's impunity everywhere in the system. That that just creates a, a, a terrible, terrible situation for the public, and one in which, frankly, people flee. Uh, people have to figure out, how the hell do we get out of this, this place, this situation? And of course, the poorest people can't leave. They have no means to, to leave and the most vulnerable. Uh, so we, we really have to do what, what we can to, to say, no, the, the answer is the answer is not to simply let the status quo continue, which is chaotic and, and mean. And, and uh, as Thomas Hobbes once said 400 years ago, nasty, brutish, and short, we've got to make sure that we, we make the, the war of all against all end. And, and that's, that requires the sovereign state to take order in hand, and that's what Haiti has to do. And and if it can't do that, then I think the world will have to come to certain other conclusions, but we're far off that point because we do have the means to help Haiti deal with the problem itself. I mean, it reminds me in some ways of many other places where there is lawlessness, whether it be a Somalia or in Afghanistan, where it's very difficult when you have entrenched powers who benefit from the chaos, who in many ways benefit from the lawlessness that exists because they profit from it. It's very hard to reestablish order in that system without basically wiping the slate clean. Well, it is hard. And and I, I think my view is that it's worth continuing to make the effort in a series of ways that will benefit the the Haitian people, but we should do we should go into this situation with with eyes wide open, 
as to the nature of the challenge that that Haiti faces. And I, I think it would be it would be irresponsible of us not to keep on insisting that it's Haiti itself that has to find ultimately find the solutions. But even the strongest critics of the of the Haitian government and the Haitian prime minister admitted to me that the police force needed more capacity. It needed more equipment and it needed a greater ability to to deal with the challenge at hand. And I I think that that to me was an interesting admission on their part, because it it means that there's a there really is a a consistent view that uh, a, a greater degree of of partnership with the Haitian police force is going to be required. And I see that the Prime Minister's incident team on Haiti are meeting tomorrow. I imagine your visit will be informing part of that discussion. Yes, I mean, I, I will be part of that discussion and, and part of many other discussions as well. I mean, there's obviously a keen interest at the UN in this question. There are other countries that are talking with us about what more they can do and how we can do it together. But I think, frankly, we have to create a, a plan that's going to allow us to engage in a way that has a chance of success. And that's not easy, but I think we have to try it. Bob Ray, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Ben. Good to talk to you. This is a story you might want to hear if you're planning on buying a gift card for Christmas or any time. A social media influencer has exposed a new scam in which thieves are stealing money loaded onto gift cards because they use a sticker on the gift card itself that's a different barcode. Here's Nichelle Lowe. She can explain. Here is a gift card scam you need to know about. What the scammers will do is actually go to a display where all the gift cards are. They'll take as many gift cards, the ones that are blank, take them home and create their own barcode, at which point they will place their own barcode over the real barcode of the card. They'll then go back to the store and place that card right back into its slot, hoping someone will purchase it. When someone purchases it and goes to the cash, the card then gets activated. However, instead of activating the real card, it's going to activate the barcode that is on the back, which is essentially the fake barcode. For example, this one here, when we scanned it, the cashier happened to look and notice that it actually wasn't the winner's card. It was actually a gas card. It was hooked up to an ESO. So essentially what I would have done had the transaction gone through was load up the scammer's ESO card, the gas card. Michelle Laus there. Um, it's it's quite ingenious. I mean, it seems fairly simple, but what it boils down to is by the time the person who receives the card goes to use it, there's nothing on it. Uh, this is one of many scams, of course, but what's remarkable about these ones is how they evolve over time. So this one, again, it seems relatively simple, right? Uh But in many ways, it is a new one and something to be aware of. Uh, This is a time of year, too, where there are more scams because people are out buying stuff and people are not paying attention to things. Joining me now is Claudio Popa. He's a cybersecurity and safety expert. He's also the author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook, and he joins us from Toronto. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on the show. So you've been talking about this. This is a time of year where not only are people very active with their with online and with their credit cards and so on, but uh, thieves are very active. Uh, criminals are very active too. They know this. 
Absolutely. This is prime time for cyber criminals. This is what they study for all year. This is what they practice for. They practice on uh, seniors. They practice on new Canadians. They practice on corporate employees all year round. And so you see them sending out these fake emails, these phishing emails once in a while to different types of audiences to see what works. All of that is fine tuning for the holiday season because this is when they send them out in mass and they want to reach hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people and and appeal to their sense of urgency, to the fact that nobody wants to miss a deal, especially, you know, a, a year like this when inflation's up, the economy is down and, and we're looking at potentially stagflation next year. Everybody's looking for a deal. Tell me a bit about this gift card one because that's an interesting one. It, uh, I was struggling to figure out how it even worked, but but apparently you should watch out if you're buying those gift cards off a display and then they're all over the place, right? That that's you should right. really pay pay attention to what's what exactly the card looks like. Gift cards are fascinating because they're highly profitable and retailers and the financial companies that back them make a lot of money from them. So they can afford to lose a certain amount to to fraud. So there's a lot that is absorbed. And it's funny because if you go on YouTube and you you, you type in my name and, and gift cards, a couple of years ago, I did this TV interview where I showed people how gift cards are cloned using these special tools that you would use to clone any other kind of magnetic card. Well, right. they don't do that anymore. This okay. year, everything has changed and they simply go into a, into two stores and they steal the cards, the, the blank, non-activated cards from wherever they find them on the shelves or hanging from from hooks and uh, they take them home and what they do is they swap their barcodes so they they carefully cut out the barcode from one and they carefully glue it onto the other and vice versa and then they go back to those stores and they place them back up on the shelf so that people who buy from whatever toys are us are going to be trying to activate a Toys R Us card when they buy it at the cash register or when they get home. And people who buy from LCBO will try to activate them. And the, 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 the way this works is as soon as these get activated, criminals are either notified or they have a script that constantly checks to see if the cards have come online and they immediately empty the cards. And of course, the sooner you buy them, the earlier you buy them, the more time they have to empty these cards. But it's particularly ingenious and it's particularly devious because they essentially get consumers or customers to activate their cards for them the, the the criminals essentially end up with free money they all they have to do is just sit there and wait which is remarkable if you think about it i mean i suppose the risk is in getting caught stealing the cards but that would yes. seem to be a relatively uh relatively um <laughs> impact-free uh situation so so in other words you you wouldn't know until the person you gave the card to went to use it and there was nothing on it Correct. There are ways to tell because uh, some cards you can you can tell that they've done a pretty poor job of gluing the thing. But by and large, they are very neat. They carefully affix these things. They place them perfectly aligned. They use proper glue, etc. So you have to essentially run your finger over the barcodes and also make sure that the scratchy ones have not already been scratched and covered over 
again. I mean, the best piece of advice is make sure that you uh, you try to buy cards that are in a box, <laughs> right? So right. if they, if sense. they are sealed in a box, then you're you're likely to be good. Obviously, uh, you need to check the seals on that box as well. But if you don't, if you buy cards that are just loose then you need to run your finger over them and just make sure. And that goes also, by the way, and this is important, it also goes for cards that you ask for because sometimes they don't have them hanging there. They just have them somewhere behind the counter. But who's to say that the the stacks of cards that are behind the counter have not all been already swapped out by someone who has kind of slipped in there and, and done it and taken advantage. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed too that that one another way of being able to tell us is if the serial number on the card should match the one that pops up on the cash right, at the Absolutely. register when yeah. it activates. So if yeah, if you just take a moment to make sure those match, it takes an eagle eye to do that. But if you ask the the cashier to simply slow down a tiny bit so you can match those numbers, most of the time the cashiers comply and mm-hmm. and and everybody you know they understand why you're asking. What happens when you buy one of these cards and it's empty? Uh, is there a recourse? Do you get your money? Do you get reimbursed or is it simply it's written? so hard to do. Uh, unfortunately, what happens is people get these gift cards. They give them away to friends. Friends essentially sit on them for a week or two. They try to activate them and they find that they're empty. So are they going to go back to the person who gave it to them? In most cases, they don't. There's already a high percentage of cards that never get reclaimed, and that's a lot of the profit. Those that do complain sometimes do get reimbursed. But of course, you have to go back through the people who bought them back to the store. The store owner has to say, well, okay, we'll assume that it took place inside the store and not afterwards. It will assume that you did not just blindly give away the code on the card to someone via email, et cetera. So it's really difficult to do. And it's one of those uh, multi-part types of fraud that are so disjointed that the only people who benefit are often the criminals, unfortunately. Claudio Popa is with us this half hour. He's a cybersecurity and safety expert, author of the Canadian Cyber Fraud Handbook. Uh, So you're mentioning a few others. There's been a lot going on out there. But as you said, you just need to slow down. You mentioned some social media stuff where uh, you know, watch out what you're signing up for when it comes to contests. Make sure that that everything you're dealing with online is as it is what it says it is. That's right. On Facebook, this is particularly prevalent. You're going to visit a retailer. These retailers often have deals going on during the holidays. They've got contests. But how do you know when the page that you're looking at is the actual page of the company that you 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 thought you were uh, visiting. One way to do that is to literally check all the contact information that's in the about. Another way of doing that is to look at the reviews and the number of followers. I was on on Facebook today and I looked at the number of followers for a number of these fraudulent pages and they had one, two, three, maybe a dozen followers instead of, let's say, a thousand that most of the well-known brands would have. That's not necessarily a guarantee. What is typically a, a dead giveaway for these for these scams is when you take the wording from the the promotion, the activity, or the contest, and you put it into the search field in Facebook. So I did that today with one of the major brands, and it came up with hundreds of other 
pages where that exact wording is. So the right. way that you do that is with quotes. So you put the, the text between quotes, you take a, a snippet of the offer, and you will see that so many different other companies are being targeted by that same wording. Why? Because they're using bots, they're using scripts, they're using computer-generated tools in order to replicate and amplify their efforts so they can maximize their profits. It feels like this dance continues. We get better at figuring out what's what a scam looks like, and the scammers get better at, at shielding it or find new ways of doing it. The evolution is clear. Like I was saying about the gift cards, it changes all the time. And and one one other scam that I've noticed that is amplifying this holiday season is that criminals are now outspending the legitimate companies that they are impersonating. They're outspending them on advertising, which means that they come up above them in search engines. Right. <laughs> so as you're Googling whatever products or retailers you're looking for, the deals that come up that are fraudulent are likely to come up above the legitimate deals of the retailer that, you know, has a limited budget because they plan this budget, you know, somewhere earlier in the in the year. They never anticipated that they'd have to compete with criminals to outspend criminals yeah. so they can end up above them on, let's say, Google AdWords, for example. Right. What would that look like? I mean, just hypothetically, what does that look like when you see it? Like, what would you end up seeing that is fraudulent instead of seeing something that wasn't, uh, that, that could fool you? It's amazing. It, it it looks indistinguishable from the real thing, except for little hints like the the domain name, like the, the URL, the website address looks the same, but instead of, let's say, Amazon.ca, it might say Amazon.to, and right. it gets presented to you just matter-of-factly, and it comes up right above the Amazon.ca deal. But um, as far as what the promotion might look like, it's literally a copy of the promotion that the uh, legitimate site has, but the deal is much bigger and the urgency is ramped up. So you've only right. got 24 hours to take advantage, or you might just have half an hour. <laughs> and they're just, and they're just looking advantage. for your credit card at this point. That's really right away. Right. I mean, yeah. they're looking for an emotional response. They want you to know that you're about to miss a deal. And the, the, the best thing I can recommend here is to not see those ads. And in order for you to do that, you need to do two things. One, do not shop from your phone. Right? It is very hard to block ads on your phone. Uh, your phone is essentially a tracking tool. And so the, the browsers that exist on your phone are made to kind of show you lots of ads. But if you're doing that shopping on your computer, just use um, a browser add-on like Adblock Plus, for instance, that will simply eliminate those ads from the page. It'll present a much cleaner look, but it also will eliminate what we call malvertising, which cannot just be fraudulent ads, but also weaponized ads that could contain malware and infect your system. So lots of good reasons to use a good pop-up blocker or ad blocker. Well, buyer beware as always this holiday season. Uh, Claudio mm -hmm. Popa, as always, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. 